looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Make Money Make Sense. Thanks for joining us this week. This week, I am joined by my co-host, DJ Smith. DJ, what's going on? Great to be with you, Dante. Looks like you have a little extra burst of energy today. Always. Lots of deals coming in, lots of stuff going on, so how could I not be? Uh, this week's guest, though, he's pretty awesome. He's a broker out of Northern Florida. His name is Bo Beery. He's got a great book that I read, and that's how I found him, Multifamily Investors Who Dominate, and the guy dominates himself, too. He does a great job. He really brings the heat this episode. He's got some great YouTube videos as well, and he posts a lot of stuff on our Facebook group, which, speaking of, if you guys are looking to get in a group with like-minded individuals, see some good multifamily articles coming in every once in a while, or every day, really, some good podcasts, some good books, definitely think you guys should join that make money make sense in multifamily over on Facebook. And our guest has actually posted a number of just great videos, very informative uh, on that Facebook page. Yeah, he's done a great job. So with that said, let's hop right into the show and welcome in Bo. Bo, welcome to the show. How are we doing today? How you doing, man? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I just came back from an inspection out of town. So uh, the, the inspector was was very nice to us. So I'm feeling good. Awesome. Awesome. Always working. I love it. Would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, sure. Uh, so Bo Beery, uh, I own my own firm, Bo Beery Multifamily Advisors. Um, I used to have a Colwell Banker commercial franchise for about 10 years prior. And I had a Colwell Banker franchise with partners. We had about 100 agents. Um, for every year I was there, I was the number, I was in the top three producers in the world in multifamily. Um, in 2020, I ended up th- number three overall, and it was just time to have my own firm. Um, prior to that, I was with a company called AMJ Group, and this was in the early 2000s, and we did office retail, industrial, and multifamily. And I did all the brokering, management, and acquisitions. Uh, it's owned by a, a very private, wealthy individual, Michael Warren. He's a phenomenal, phenomenal investor. So I, I mention all this because I got... I got great education from a main principal and learned the, the goods and bads of brokers um, and how they could add value in the best way. And I also got to, to sort of meet, follow, and still continue to do business today with what I call elite investors, which is a very small group of investors that do a tremendous number of transactions per year. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely going to touch on that. And before we do, want to hop in with this little plug here. Multifamily investors who dominate a book you just kind of came out with. It's phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, it's great. And uh, so I got a copy of that. I read it. I was like, I got to get them on the show. And what I really liked about this book is it's not like the other hundred books of talking about real estate on my shelf. It's not talking about the returns and, you know, how to get a good deal and how to add value to it, how to operate it. It really talks about that relationship building and more of like a mindset approach too, which I really enjoyed. So we'll talk about that. Um, but yeah, uh, Bo, also mentioned, where are you from? Where where are you from and where are you now? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've been in Florida my whole life. I was born, born in Boynton Beach, Florida. Um, I went to high school in a real small town called Pearson, 
like 60 people graduating class. Um, and then I, uh, and then I went to the university of Florida after high school. And, uh, so that was in, that was in the late nineties and I graduated with a marketing degree. And, uh, and then I went and worked for Tremel Crow residential, which was the largest apartment developer in the country at the time. And I worked for them for three years at the ground level, did leasing property management, um, uh, just learned a tremendous amount about sort of on-site assets. It was a 440 unit community. And we actually built it from the ground floor up. And uh, while I was with Tremble Crow, they would pay for education. I got my real estate license. And everyone was talking about the master's degree in real estate over uh, the program over University of Florida. It was one of the top three in the country. Long story short, it took me two years to get in. I had to get a certain score on the GMAT, work experience, all this stuff. I finally got accepted. They only accept 30 students um, a year from around the world. And uh, with, with huge persistence, I, I finally wore out the admissions person and got in, met my wife during that program, um, uh, married her, uh, and she's one of those few ladies that like actually was born and raised in the same town and wanted to stay there forever. So I've been in Gainesville since 1996, and uh, I cover the northern half of Florida. So Orlando, Lakeland, Winter Haven is kind of as far south as I go. And then I cover everything north, Ocala, Gainesville, Daytona, New Smyrna, Ormond, Deland, St. Augustine, Jacksonville, Tallahassee, and anything in between. Awesome, awesome. I love that. So being that you're a lead broker, we're obviously going to be talking about brokers today and how important they are to business. Before we hop into that, you have these awesome YouTube videos and you say something <laughs> at the beginning of each YouTube video. I need you to just do for me real quick. So we're going to get started. Let's go. Let's go. I love it. Awesome. So brokers, we know how important brokers are in this business. You guys are the marketing machines. When a lot of people say, okay, let's go look for off market deals. You know, I can't help but to kind of shake my head and say, you know, there's someone that's doing way better at you at that. And that's the brokers in those markets. Brokers are extremely important because that's where all your deal flow is coming from and who you want to build relationships with. And, you know, DJ can touch on this as well. When we enter a new market, like we were in North and South Carolina, that was kind of our first thing we did to break into that market was build those broker relationships, Smart. those boots on the grounds. And, uh, you know, just to show these individuals that was very serious. I'm from New York, DJs in the Carolinas. I flew in, you know, we met with about 14 brokers, I think somewhere in that realm Perfect. one week, you know, and then I'm going back down next week and we're going to meet with a few more. And so to me, that really means showing these guys you're serious. They get flooded and, and Bo, you could say this too. They get flooded with emails every week, phone calls. Hey, can you send me some deals? Oh, I like this property. Da, da, da. I mean, the yeah. list goes on, but taking that step going across the country or down country or whatever and getting in front of them and telling them what you're looking for and being very specific is important. So let, let's touch on that first. When it comes to brokers for you, how important do you say they are to the business? Yeah. So let me, let me just preempt this, that it's, it's not that brokers are you know, these amazing people. You just have to put perspective this, right? So you guys as investors have a tremendous job, right? From the time you wake up to the time you go to bed, you're having to, you know, you're, you're finding equity, you're building relationships with debt, you know, you're finding uh, asset managers and property managers, you're working with your investors, you're handling renovations, you're, you, a lot of the bigger groups have staff, all this stuff, right? Like you guys, from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed, you have a lot of things that you're working on. All I do from the time I wake up at 5am to the time I go to bed 
is I'm, I'm perfecting my algorithm as a broker to tell me which asset is going to come for sale next, oftentimes before the seller even knows it, right? So I don't have tons of staff members and I don't have to raise equity and debt and all the things that you guys have to do. All we do is find listings before you find them, right? That's our job. And if that's all you do every day, and if you've done it in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you perfect your craft. And what happens is we develop enough relationships deep enough with the folks who own these assets that they know how tuned in we are with the market and the values. So if you own a $15 million asset, why would you ever entertain an offer from some guy you don't know that's off the streets that's called you and said, hey, I'd like to make an offer of your asset, when you can call up Bo Beery or whoever who can expose it to the market and have you 13 offers in nine days and be under contract within 20 days and close 60 days later, right? And create a bidding war. And so most sellers, particularly over 30, 40, 50 units, once you get over that mark, these are sophisticated people, right? I mean, they, they know how the world works and, and, uh, and they're not going to just sell it for nothing off the streets. And uh, so they're going to they're going to bring in the relationships. They know that we have been talking to all the people who buy stuff. Right. So I know all the buyers and I have all their criteria and I know what they'll pay and what their constraints are, and whether or not working at 1031 and how they participate in different transactions. So I can give them background on everybody. It's like, you know, if you don't know anything about who's coming to you, it's that's not how you want to. That's not how you want to go to market. That's why they bring in the brokers. Right. And you guys are definitely established. So with the broker, you're talking to these sellers, like you were saying, you know, when these sellers are going to sell before they even do. So, you know, you know, people that just went through acquisition or, or two years into it, they're most likely not going to sell right away, but you know, when they're going to, you have an idea. So where does it begin for you when you're building relationships with these sellers? How do you get that first touch, that first breakthrough with them? Um, the very first point of contact is when they're new to market. So, so, so what I did was, you know, this was, I guess it's been 12, 14 years ago, what I did as a broker was I exported from every property appraiser website, every owner of every asset in the entire northern half of Florida, right? So in Florida, it's a, basically a showbiz state on their property appraiser websites. And so you can, you, can, you can see who owns all these assets. And most of them have the ability to export to Excel. I then imported them into my CRM. And over the years, I've built relationships with all of them already, Right. Nowadays, when someone's new to market, right? So we have a ton of calls, all the brokers from California and New York right now, right? Because they're getting killed on values, taxes, all that stuff. So when some guy in California who may own 3,000 units there buys their first deal in Jacksonville, they pop up on the sale records in the property appraiser website. My assistant finds that, sees that sale, puts it in my spreadsheet, finds out everything about that sale through online and finding and research sends me the new contact information for that person. I reach out to them, you know, hey, Dante, my name's Bo Beery. I'm with Multifamily Advisors. I'm a broker in Florida. I see you just bought ABC Apartments. Hey, nice job. You actually got that for a good price. By the way, I happen to know the seller and we just, you know, I kind of, I kind of get real warm with him very quickly that I'm not just not calling him for, you know, to sell an asset. So I usually, I usually find out what their buy criteria is, right? I don't ever call up and say, hey, do you want to flip it? I call up and say, hey, hey, Dante, great job on the purchase. Are you looking to buy more assets in Florida, right? Mm, yeah. Most brokers are calling and say, hey, you just bought that. By the way, the market's so hot, I could resell <laughs> that for you. Or what else do you have? What, you know, sell, 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 sell. Especially the national brokerages, the public traded ones, 
you know, it's all tra very transactional. And so I flip the script and find out what they want to buy. And so I've created these two um, software systems in my, in my CRM that's properties, all the properties and every characteristic you can think about. And on the buy side, I have it all um, uh, in searchable fields for everything they like to buy. Number of units, size, age, type of construction, you know, dot, 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 dot. And so as I plug that in, that way, when I get listings, instead of just email blasting it to 20,000 people and putting on every website, I can narrow down to the exact, you know, 86 people who want this exact asset. I mean, down to the brick, right? Right. Um, so that's how I, that's how I build my database built moving forward. But in the, in the past, it was spending years uploading all those folks, to the CRM, finding contact information. And you can imagine, I've had these conversations with the same folks that trade, trade, buy and sell over the last 20 years. So you get right. close with them. So let me ask you this then, when they're coming into like, like you said, when you have California or New York investors come into this new market and they bought their first asset, being that they bought that first asset, do you think they might already be building a relationship with the listing broker on that asset? Or are you thinking they're just kind of coming in unrepresented and new listings you get, you're going to bring out to them? Uh, you know, if I'm the California guy and I have a lot of assets in California, but then nothing in New York, um, you know, you're probably going to be selling your history in California. Most of these, and again, most of these guys who already own a bunch of units, they know how the game works. They, they know they can't just call up a broker and turn in an offer and not tell them anything about themselves, right? The right, smart guys right. are saying, hey, I own this, this, and this. Here's the addresses. Would love to develop a relationship with you. I'm sure you know what's going on in California. I'm buying this asset. Here's my criteria. Uh, we'd love to work with you. And the good ones are putting in sort of an automated repetitive system, like the one I talk about in my book, to keep up with these brokers, right? Now, not everyone does that. In fact, the majority of buyers are just very, um, it's, it's one transaction, right? So it's, it's, it's dealing with as little as possible with brokers, right? That's, a little, that's what most buyers do is they see the broker as, they don't understand how, how, um, how much of the inventory is controlled by brokers. They believe either through, um, through some sort of, of guru that they've been educated on or, or, you know, there's, there's a bunch of them out there that teach a lot of investors on how to buy things and, you know, and how to call sellers directly and, and how to do mailings and all these things. And so it warps a lot of mostly newer investors' minds thinking they could beat brokers to the punch on finding listings. Whereas if they just concentrated their entire, you know, business plan on befriend, befriending brokers and becoming the type of investors that we want to do business with, they will be flooded with deals, right? But instead, they think that the brokers are the one, are sort of the devil because we prop up the price super high and get it past the returns that they ever could ever buy it at, right? And yes, that is part of our job. But the fact of the matter is, if I compare the guy who tries to do the off-market purchase for a discount, which is bullshit, I'll address that later, versus the guy who develops relationships with brokers, this guy is buying five, six times more than this guy, right? By far. Now, the per deal, say profit margin or cash on cash, might not be as strong as the guy who bought this. But if your overall goal is to grow units and grow profitability and grow company worth, 
why would you, why would you go the slower route? Right. I know so, some investors, I know some investors, by the way, who's like, they get a thrill out of being able to say, I bought this off market, you know, so-and-so died, the widow inherited it, man, this thing's worth $80,000 a unit. I got it for 62 a door. Boo, boo, boo. Well, great. I know guys who just bought six deals in the time it took you to find that. Right. So for investors then building these relationships with brokers, um, one of the things I really appreciated about you and the videos that you put out is just uh, how tuned in and dialed in you are relative to relationships. Uh, really important. So for those investors that are out there looking at properties, uh, whether they have them, whether they're new, what should we be doing to build our relationships with brokers and let them know that we're a serious buyer? Yeah. Um, okay, so the the if you really want to get good at this, uh, most folks get scared about um, technology, but because depending on how many markets you're covering, right? Like I cover the whole northern half of Florida. I do that because that that produces enough transactions based on my market share where I can make the amount of money I want to make. This, I tell you that because the same thing should be done for investors. The number of markets you care that you cover should be dictated by how many of those deals you think you can buy and therefore how much money you guys want to make as partners, right? In order to do that, for the northern half of Florida, I have calculated there are 60 multifamily brokers, right? Now, the top 20% are the ones doing most of the volume, right? So 12 brokers are doing the majority of the volume, but you want to be talking to all 60 because those other 48 brokers do between one and say six or seven deals a year, right? But you can't, you can't communicate with 60 different brokers just remembering this stuff. You have to automate it and you have to have a CRM, right? I use a CRM called RealNext. Doesn't matter which one you own. There's a whole bunch of them out there, Salesforce and Apto and all this stuff. The important part is, is, is actually using it. So I would, I would find out every single multifamily broker in every market you cover. All you have to do is Google them, go on LoopNet, go on CoStar. You type, you can Google multifamily broker, you know, Jacksonville. They're all going to pop up, right? Multifamily, you know, multifamily broker, Florida, whatever it is. You'll start seeing them. And, and, and within an hour, you'll pretty much figure out all of them. You're going to then import them into a CRM with all their contact information, you know, pictures of them, emails, all this stuff. Then you're going to automate this. And what I mean by that is, is you're going to schedule every four to six weeks for every one of those brokers spaced out. So you aren't doing 60 in one day, spaced out over a number of days so that every day you've basically got two to four brokers that you're calling. That's not a, that's not a big deal. Some of those calls, you, you know, actually most of those calls, you probably won't reach them the first time, right? Because they're busy and they're going to have to call you back. And by the time you guys play phone tag, it's been two days. And some of these calls will last three or four minutes. Some of them will go 30 minutes, depending on you know, the conversation. But until you automate this, if you just try to remember calling these guys, then what happens is you only call the top 20%. You're only going to be calling Bo and Joe and John because that's the ones that you remember the most. That's the ones doing the most transactions. But you want to have that huge reach. And so once you automate it, every day when you come in, your CRM and you type in today, it tells you the exact guys you're calling. And when you call them, you're taking notes. And in the beginning, so you aren't creepy, you aren't talking about family and kids right off the bat. 
it's more like an introductory call, right? Like, hey, my name's DJ. I'm a I'm an investor in South Carolina. Um, you know, I, I looked you up online. Looks like you do some great business. I love the way you present yourself. I like your marketing packages. Would like to get to know you. So and so told me about you. Hey, here's what we're looking for. Tell me what I can do to get on your list um, so that I can see your your, your you know, the listings that you get. We react very quickly. We're going to tell you yes or no right off that. So you're doing all this stuff to make the broker feel like, all right, this guy gets it. He gets how my brokerage world works. He gets how important it is for me to be able to respond to sellers and give feedback. So that's your initial phone call. And then you're immediately as you, whatever it is that you find out about that broker during that conversation, maybe you guys talk about cars or you talk about golf, whatever it is, just something, just something light, you're making notes. Hey, Bo loves Porsche cars. The guy's a fanatic about it, right? And then you're scheduling it right away. As soon as you hang up that call, if you don't schedule it, that's one of the 69 brokers who's going to do five to 10 to 15 deals a year for the next 20 years. You just lost them just because you didn't schedule. You got to schedule it. So you're scheduled in six weeks, you're going to call Bo again. And when six week come call comes up, you're reading your notes. Okay, his wife's, you know, and after, anyway, after a year, after two years, you get a whole thing in notes. You start to get to know each other. Maybe you go to a car show together, you play golf together, you have a beer together. Whenever you're in town checking out a car, checking out another uh, a property, you're calling up Bo and say, hey, I'm going to be in town on Thursday. We should get together for lunch. So you can imagine, like I talk about in my book on these elite investors, over the course of 5, 10, 20 years, every six weeks, you're touching on these 60 brokers and you're developing relationships and you're talking about family and you're talking about hobbies and sports and you know, deaths in the family and, oh, did you hear about this? And it's like, it's not just about business, right? But you do that over a long period of time. You can see how when Bo gets a new listing, I'm tipping off 15 or 20 of my favorite friends who are some of the best investors in the world three or four weeks before that listing even hits a website. Now he may still have to compete, but the reason six days after a listing hits the market there's 13 offers is not because they're geniuses who in six days were able to underwrite it. I gave them months head up, right? They knew about it a month ahead of time. Now that also benefits for my seller. I just took, I just grabbed the best investors in the country, right? I'm not, I'm not grabbing the guy who only owns one asset just because I like him because I, I need him to make me look good. I need him to, to buy this thing and close on it and not retrade. I'm calling some of the best guys who consistently buy and don't retrade and don't badmouth and don't make me look bad and all that stuff. These are the guys I'm calling first. Now, they don't always win it. There could be some other guys who, who I know very well and who know me. They just aren't in love with me like I'm in love with them. Sometimes those guys win it. But the point is, is that you want to have... you. You want to know about every listing that comes in the markets. The whole book is, right. about, is about this right here. It's that when I show, I, I, I call it the love factor. So when I show you that there were a hundred closings in the markets that you cover that are of the asset that you would buy, and I showed you that list, and I said, Dante, how many of these did you actually know about? And your answer is 10? You ain't doing things right. Right, it's poor. You ain't doing things right. That means that there are majority of the brokers, since brokers are doing over 90% of all closings, that anything that's over 10 units, and the, and the bigger the asset is, it's, all, it's closer to 100%, right? Right. 
So, so that means the majority of those brokers aren't thinking about you because you're not thinking about them. And it's, and it's not like, you know, it's not like we like to have our back rubbed and feel special. This is just human nature, guys. This is just yeah. like people, people do business with their friends. It's why I have in my career, I've lost big listings. Like I can remember last year, there was a 75 unit listing that was for $8 million. I lost the listing to a residential broker. They've Oof. never sold, not even an apartment complex, but the seller goes to church with them and they've been long-term friends. Mm, and, yeah. and you know that's rare. Okay, that seller made a stupid move, but that's how important relationships are in this business. And we hear about that all the time. The problem is, is that until you automate this, you know, most guys are calling the top 20% brokers. If you can cover all of them, those other 48 brokers, that other 80%, if you could just grab one or two extra transactions in a 10-year period yeah. and you made seven figures on each, was it worth hundreds of hours of having to communicate and talk to these guys over a 10-year period? Hell yeah. yeah. It is to me. It would be to me. If I handed you seven figures 10 years from now and you had to go through hundreds of hours of conversations with brokers that maybe you don't even like them, but I hand you a seven figure check in 10 years, I guarantee you, your wives will be happy about that. Yeah, no, exactly. Let's kind of go back and touch on the intro. When you said you're going in this new market, you're breaking in, you're going to Google these people, you're going to call them and you get that the whole intro stage. Yeah. Now, what about for the listeners that are saying, I don't own any assets. I don't have anything to talk about. How do yeah. I make these brokers take me seriously? Because a lot of people, you know, we get that question a lot from a lot of new investors who yeah. want to build these relationships, but are scared to even mention the word multifamily because they don't want to be asked how many units they have. Right. No, it, it's super important. And I only know of one way to do this, right? The only way that the new guys can do, you can't, you can't be a new guy and call up and say, Hey, I'm a new guy. I'm turning an offer. You're already dead. Okay. So if you, if you watch one of my most recent videos on my YouTube channel, I, give, I actually I, I talk about how I present offers to sellers, okay? And I'll, I'll answer your question, but I need to leave. Great video, by the way. Really enjoyed that one. Cool. So when I, and you know, every broker does it differently, but it goes something like this. As offers come in, I have a spreadsheet. And then spreadsheet, if you can imagine, it has columns from left to right. It has the name of the company, the principal, the price they offered, price a unit, due diligence period, closing. And then I have a very important notes section. And in the notes section is where I'm putting notes about that buyer to my seller. It could be anything from this guy is a newbie. He doesn't own anything to he was super rude and he criticized your property to I love this guy. I've done tra three transactions with this guy. He's a real closer, whatever it is, right? These are notes. As a newbie, you can't call up and say, I'm a newbie. I don't care how good your offer is. It's tough because my reputation is at risk. And if I screw this up and go with you on this seller and you retrade or you were to an experience, you didn't know about something or you didn't know how this, how this apartment complex was built and something, some surprise came up and you back out, I'm toast. Because it's really hard to go back to other buyers because the first thing they're gonna ask is, okay, well, what happened? What happened, right? So now my seller's in a weird role where I'm now having to sell to the buyers because of what the first buyer did, right? And that seller is probably not going to use me again, depending on how that whole situation went. So the only thing beginners can do, what I suggest, is hooking up with a mentor. You got to team up with a guy who owns units, who has a financial background, who has experience, 
And yes, you may have to give up 95% of your equity, your profitability, whatever it is. Yes, you found the deal. Even if you found it off market, no matter how much of a champion you think you are, if you can't get under a contract and close, it doesn't mean shit. You got to give up. You got to give up for several transactions. Maybe it's a couple of years. Maybe it's three years until you build your own fame and you build your own, you know, with, with this guy alongside you. And then you can start doing your own stuff. Right. Um, and there's a lot of guys to do that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of these, you know, these like, like Rod Cleave has a program, think multifamily. I can go on and on unless a bunch of different programs that done a really good job of, of basically creating an army to go out and find stuff. And so they team up. Now don't just put some guy's name on there that you're teaming up. I, you know, brokers, they understand that, that you can try to try to cheat the system. We want, you know, we want that syndicator to like acknowledge that he's on board with you, that he's buying it with you, that he's teaming up with you, right? Right. So find one of those guys. It doesn't have to be one of those big ones I just listed. Find someone who's got the balance sheet and the experience and the list of number of deals. And that's the only way to do it. Yeah, no, I you're think not, that's not, really With good any good broker who's worth a crap, you're not going to be able to like, verbal game your way through this. We right, know what right. we're looking for. We know when we see a fake. Yeah. And how about syndicators versus regular buyers? What would you say the percentages that you're seeing? So people that are going out raising capital or people that actually already have capital and don't have to go through the whole GPLP syndication route. Yeah. I would say over 50 units, it's probably 70% syndicators. Right. Um, and, you know, listen, syndication could be it could be, you know, the two of you who have 10 other investors. That's still right. really kind of a syndication. Right. So almost everyone's a syndication. Very, very rarely anymore is a private, wealthy individual able to compete unless they're just like, you know, at least unless they're, there's actually most a lot of the elite investors that I work with. They are one or two person guys who don't syndicate, but they were syndications. They've built up. And then they've kind of broken off and now they've got tons of equity they need to place and they have their own company, right? Yeah. But syndications are tough to compete against because if they built a good following, they're making money on the closing statement, on the purchase closing statement. Yeah. Right? So it's crazy. Now, let's talk a little bit about returns. So in today's market, it's no secret that multiple offers are on every single listing. Margins are getting tighter. Cap rates are compressing. Interest rates are very low. What's causing that? But what are some creative factors you're seeing acquisition teams going to do to hit these IRRs, equity multiples, multiples or cash on cash returns to meet their requirements and their investors' requirements? What are you seeing? Yeah, um, I mean, the most recent trend right now is the whole hotel conversion to apartments. Um, those are harder to find. I mean, the, the motels, meaning, you know, basically there's one or two story concrete block, you know, cheap looking deals. Those are really tough to do because of fire sprinklers. You got to add fire sprinklers that usually kills the deal. And most motels are in crappy locations. Um, so those are tough. The, the glory is the, is the um, extended stay hotel. They're really already built as apartments. They, they have the majority of the kitchens in place. They're usually over 400 square foot units. And my understanding is with Fannie and Freddie, you got to have at least a 400 square foot unit in order to get their financing. Um, I'm working on those, one of those right now. I've got one in Jacksonville um, that I'm working on and, and we actually go to, we actually just sent out the contract. Hopefully we'll be in contract in the next week or so. It'll be my first one that I've done, but that's a big trend that folks are, folks are going after. Um, and then the other part is that, so I, I did a study in 2019 
and that study is on my website. It's in one of the resources section. But I compared what asset class is the best to buy that when you value add it has the biggest jump per unit in value, right? So what I did was like I covered every single sale for like, I think it was the trailing 24 years. And the way I rank assets is A, B plus, B, B minus, C plus, C, C minus. I don't even cover Ds. There's hardly any of them. A D would be like boarded up or, you know, whatever. So what I determined was from C minus to C or from a C to a C plus, a C plus to a B minus, all those had about a fifteen dollars to $20,000 a unit jump in value. So in other words, if you bought a C and you were able to improve it to a C plus, fifteen dollars to $20,000 a unit in, in value jump. And maybe you spent six or eight to get there, whatever it is, right? The best stuff in the world is to take a B to a B plus. That's between forty dollars and $50,000 a unit. Now, they're hard to find because you have to imagine a B plus asset is typically a mid-2000s product that is in an excellent location. So if you're finding a B, the B has to be in a comparable excellent location. It's just older. So the B might be early 2000s, but if you can upgrade it to a B plus status, countertops, all that stuff, and it's in a B plus location, you can get that forty dollars to $50,000 pop. Now, the same pop exists if you can go from B plus to A, but that's even harder because every A asset is almost always within four years old. And so the B plus asset has to be in a sensational location and you have to take the, the renovations to an A class status to compete with 2021 fixtures, countertops, technology, all that shit. Really hard to do, but it can be done. So let's switch gears just a little bit and take it bigger picture, markets and what the economy is doing. We've seen obviously a run on real estate. We've seen cap rates being driven down, especially in the Southeast. Um, COVID comes along. Uh, we have a new administration. So love the let's go introduction. So let's go with, with markets and the crystal ball. Where are we going from here? I get asked this all the time and I, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you my opinion, but I just want to let you know that like every single year I'm wrong. Every single year, every single year, I think to myself, there's no way the prices can go up. There's no way that that guy who bought that for that price is going to resell in three years. And every damn time I'm wrong. Right. I'm just, we're at a top. We're at a top. Right. Every single time, you know, every I, I'm time. broker in New York. I say the same thing. Realize if you buy this, you have to hold it for at least five years. So you're not upside down next year, they can sell it at a profit. It just, it blows my mind, but yeah, go ahead, Bo. <laughs> so with that said, I, I, okay. So interest rates are supposed to sit, remain low through 2023, right? Uh, supply, I think will continue to be very, very low. And, and it, the reason is because we have already traded a little over 30% of inventory in the trailing 38 months, okay? So if we've traded a third of the inventory, you may say, well, Bo, there's two thirds of the inventory that hasn't sold. Yes, but of that two thirds, another third is already refied in the last one to two years. You're not going to be able to buy that because the defeasance is going to be too high, right? So then what's left over is how many of those are owned by long-term funds? 
So these are funds that I just, I just know they have to hold it a certain number of years because they've promised a certain return to their investors. They can't sell it. How many are owned by the guy who says, yeah, Bo, I'll sell. Here's my price. And that price is like, what? Are you nuts? So you can't buy that. How many are in locations that even if they did sell, you wouldn't buy anyway? So my point is, is because we've already sold, we're basically selling between 8 and 10% of inventory per year. So that, that's a huge amount, right? Like before the run-up, it used to run 4 or 5%. So we're, we're killing how many sales are happening. So we've reached a point where the number of assets that are actually available that you could ever even purchase right now is very, very low. That's not going to change for another several years. And then the cycle may, may kick back up. Um, and then the last thing is, is, you know, I think there's a lot of folks uh, waiting around to see what happens with the Biden tax plan. 1031 exchanges and capital gains. So what I've looked at in history is that let's say Biden by the end of the year says, uh, says hey world, we're gonna go from 23.8% on long-term capital gains. We're gonna go all the way to the 44.3%, right? Which would, which would sound devastating. What'll happen is, is in 2021, I'll sell a crap load of real estate, right? Because everyone's gonna get this done in 2021 because it's not gonna take effect till 2022. In 2022, what's happened in the year after these, these tax hikes is things slow way down. And then 2023, things don't come back in a roar, but they yeah. go back to almost normal because what's happened is everyone's looked around and like, well, I'm a real estate guy and I, I still got to trade. So everyone's in the same boat. It's not like one guy gets 30%, one guy gets 44%. And so the world kind of gets back to the, the new normal like we have in COVID, right? The yeah. end of the world happened for three months last year. And then everyone's, I mean, if you're in Florida, no one wears masks right now, right? It's still just as deadly, but no one wears masks here. Don't get me started. I want to be down there. I'm tired of wearing this thing. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I, I don't see, I, I certainly don't see prices going in reverse. What I see is by the end of the year, I think prices will slow down. The, the rate of appreciation will slow down. So instead of it doing this, I think it's going to start getting to a little more normal because I do feel like based on where cap rates are, because we're now doing four and a half, five percent cap rates in markets I never thought of. And if you're borrowing for high twos to low threes, there's just not anything left. Like truly, I know, I know in 2017, 18 and 19, I was still saying there's no way we can go higher. But the reality was the difference between the borrowing rate and the cap rate still had enough margin where you could go up. Now we're at a point where there really just isn't anything left. Yeah. So I think the rate of appreciation will slow down quite a bit by the end of the year. And it'll feel like maybe the world's ending, but it's not. The value is still going to continue to go up because there's a lack of supply and the interest rates. Yeah, no, I, I really agree with your thoughts there for sure. We talked about a little bit before the show of what kind of investing you personally do and kind of conflicts of interest. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? So what, what are you, Bo, doing right now as far as investing for yourself? Yeah, I would, so I have a, I have a, um, a kind of a personal creed, right? And I actually learned this from one of the number one brokers in the world, a guy named Bob Knackle in New York, um, phenomenal, phenomenal investment broker, used to own uh, Massey Knackle, sold it for this huge sum of money. Um, he and I um, have shared coaches in the past. So that's how I've gotten to know him. And he told me something a long time ago that he never buys the same uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't buy apartments because that's what he sells. It's a huge conflict of interest. 
there's a lot, of, it's a conflict of interest to me. That's my personal opinion. I have broker friends that buy apartments all the time and they sell apartments. That's cool. My theory on that subject is that if I'm buying stuff, most of the investors I know who are really in it for the, uh, who are really in this game, they're tracking sales. They're looking who bought it, who sold it. And if my name pops up two, three times, they're not going to use me. I'm a competitor, right? I also have a lot of syndicators who say, Bo, hey, we would love for you to invest in our syndication. Now, what they're really saying is, hey, Bo, we want you to invest in our syndication because now you have a vested interest to bring us deals. If I bring him deals yep. and people find out that I'm with their syndication, then other syndications can be like, oh, I see you invest in so-and-so in syndication. How come you invest in mine? And then if I'm another, the third thing is if I buy assets, then when I come on the market with listings, guess what Dante is going to ask me? Bo, how come you're not buying it? If it's so good, how come you're not buying it? Right? Yep. So it's just, listen, early on in my career, I did that and you just get bit too much and you're just like, screw this. So what I buy is, I, I wish I could buy multifamily. That's my number one favorite. I buy office and industrial um, in my little market here in Gainesville because I've been here for 20 something years. I know the assets. I only buy with partners who can manage it. So these are company, these are guys who own their own management company already. I don't have the time to do that stuff. It's not my expertise. Um, they pay themselves market rate management fees. Um, we hire brokers that pay themselves market rate brokerage fees and, uh, and we buy it together. And, and so that, that's my retirement vehicle for down the road. Um, and that way I stay out of trouble. That way, every time I bring a listing to market, um, no matter how good it is, I don't care if some guy calls me with an $80,000 unit deal and he's like, Bo, I really want you to buy it. I like you. I've been following you forever. You're the best guy in the world to sell it to you for $50,000 a door. I, I'm just not going to do that. Even though I can make a bunch of money, my blood, my bread and butter for the rest of the next 20 years is brokerage. And I don't want to kill that. Dante, do we have time before we get into our curious cues for one more question? Yeah, go for it. We're doing great on time. Okay. Bo's bringing the value, so let's go for it. Yeah, Bring it on DJ. I, I think we could extend this by a few hours, but <laughs> <laughs> anyways, one of the the videos that you put out uh, that I really loved talked about uh, negotiations and in, in between uh, some of the syndicators or buyers and sellers, <clears throat> and the topic was uh, really about the assumptions. And I came out of the engineering world, right? I've seen how when you stack conservative assumptions on top of one another in particular, it's okay to have a conservative assumption in your underwriting. But when you start stacking those one on top of the other, you're never going to come up with a sales price that's going to make a deal work. So how should a potential buyer protect themselves and you know, still underwrite the deal with the right numbers. Can you just touch on that piece? I, I yeah, just, I thought that was a great one. That's a great question. So let me tackle it first from the sell side. The first thing that has to happen is brokers have to do a good job or better job of, of checking their seller, right? So every time I take a listing, oftentimes what happens is the seller is dictating to the broker what the sale price is. Now, listen, a lot of the times the sellers will call up and say, hey, we want a BOV. I do the BOV. They like the BOV. We go to market. That happens, right? But a lot of the times, the prices you see, whether or not, no matter how crazy they are, it's the seller calling up Bo and saying, hey, my partners and I think it's worth 20 million. I do my underwriting. I can't get, I, I can't create a pro form that's over 17 and a half. As a broker, I have a choice. I can either take the listing 
and he at least have a chance of selling it or not take the listing and some other broker is going to take it and they're probably going to sell it, right? But what I do with the sellers, I say, hey, listen, here's my underwriting. I think I can get you the 20 million because it's a hot market. You have a beautiful asset, but here's my underwriting. Here's what sometimes, here's what some of the offers might come in at and why, Okay. So it's so it starts with the listing broker trying to educate a little bit on what's going on and prepping just in case you don't find the one guy who pays 20. Now, on the buyer side, the number one thing I can ever teach or help you understand is you got to kiss a hundred frogs. All right. That, so that, that's that's what's messing everybody up is, you know, you guys will you guys will underwrite 25 deals in a row over a six month period and not come close to the price and think this is nuts. The brokers are crazy. The sellers are crazy. Never going to buy anything. No, no, no. You've only met a quarter of what you're supposed to on, on, on the on the on the quotient. I mean, the best buyers I know in the world, they're, they are literally going through 100 underwritings. That's a lot of work. 100 underwritings is a lot of work. I get it. Right. But it's what you have to do because of that. Right. So when you're underwriting, you know, <laughs> you want to look at the broker performance as a guide, but it ain't something you ever want to listen to. You got to do all your own research. Um, the big ones are the property taxes. That's a big, big deal. The insurance is probably the next biggest deal because a lot of these bigger owners, they have these umbrella policies. And so their overall price could be $200 a unit when the norm right now is 500, right? So you can't take that word for it. So you got to underwrite every single line item. And yeah, you're oftentimes going to come up a pretty good far amount apart. And so what happens is, is the, the, the end game is, can I truly create the extra value that's being tried, that's tried to be sold to me, right? Because that seller's income and expense statement is never going to look like yours, but can you make it up truly on what the rents could go to on renovations? Almost every time the answer is no. Okay. And so you're either passing up time for your returns or you're passing on a deal. What I mean by passing on time is, is instead of trying to get to the 7% cash on cash within a year, we're in a world where maybe it's year three, Right. And yeah. so here's the thing, five years from now, okay, from this date today on Friday, if, if we underwrote 10 deals together on this podcast and we passed on all of them, but three of them could have met our returns in three years, <clears throat> five years from now, that ain't going to mean shit. It's really not. Investors are getting way too cognitive on this stuff. They're, they're relying way too much on that year one or two rate of return when really in five years, if you're, if you're cash flowing at what you would have been and you still have some upside and it's in a good corridor and things are being developed nearby and da 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 da, why not go that route, right? Now, that yeah. takes some prep work from you to your investors. You got to let your investors know, hey, if we're going to buy stuff, I can guarantee you we get to our returns. We're just going to have to kiss the first year or two goodbye. doesn't mean it's a bad asset. You're not going to be in a negative cash flow situation, right? I mean, you may, you may just be at a 3% a cash on cash or a 4% cash on cash. 
But some mentors that I had early in my career, they've always taken the long-term approach, right? And what's happened is the problem is syndications, the average hold time right now is 41 months. You can't do jack in 41 months. You got to buy it right, okay? But if you held it five, seven, 10 years, or if you had that frame of mind, a lot of these deals will work. Yeah. Now, no, if you got to be in and out in three and four, then my answer to you is you just got to kiss a lot of frogs. You can't, you can't buy into FOMO. FOMO kills people, man. Yeah. Looking, looking for that. It's, it's true. Well, DJ, do you have anything else? Are we good to head over to the next section of the show? Well, I, I think it's probably time. Uh, I certainly would encourage you, Bo, you want to make a plug for your YouTube channel because there, there's some tremendous content on there and love the introduction, by the way. <laughs> Dante, how'd you do it? That was awesome. Great. Uh, yeah, my YouTube channel is Bo Knows Multifamily. That's spelled B-E-A-U, Knows Multifamily. And uh, just subscribe on there. And I, I put out a video a week. It's usually, there's videos for, how to buy more units, how to sell for top dollar. I do a lot of market analytics, how to analyze markets. Um, I even do every now and then I put out new listings that no one else has seen. Like it's just a fun thing I'll do sometimes where like I won't even tell my most favorite guys in the world. I'll just put it up there and I'll give YouTube uh, subscribers two or three days and then I'll put it out on the other websites and so forth. And the other thing is I really do, you know, I don't make, no one ever makes a bunch of money selling a book. So don't think I'm just doing this to sell a book. But this really is like a Bible for truly picking up a number of units. You can learn how to underwrite, manage, operate multifamily companies all you want. But if you never get deals brought to you, it don't mean jack. Right. Can't get anything done. Totally agree. Awesome. Well, let's head over to our next section of the show called the Curious Cues. We're going to fire some questions at you that we ask every guest and let's get your answer. Yeah, man. Question number one, a favorite podcast you enjoy listening to. Ooh, um, I like, um, actually unrelated to real estate, Andy Andrews, Andy Andrews is a guy I mentioned in the book. Um, he talks a lot about, um, uh, how to, you know, basically how to gain business by relationships. Yeah. I I saw that in the book, took note of it. Going to check those out. Speaking of books, favorite book you enjoy reading. Oh man. Uh, (laughs) Again, Everything's real estate unrelated because I'm so absorbed in it every day of my life. I'm a huge Porsche nut. My favorite things to read in the world is about Porsche 911s. It's my thing. <laughs> there you go. I used to, pre-real estate, I used to work at an auto mall with 16 dealers underneath one roof. Oh. Porsche was one of the dealerships I was oh, at man. a lot. So yeah. it, it was cool because I was tight with the my Porsche manager. And so I got to take out the cars, you know, oh. them around for a few hours. Yeah. Good time. I want to go to Atlanta to go to the uh, the Porsche Experience. I think that'd be yeah. pretty cool. Well, we we just gave people some great real estate content, so it, it's okay to go off the rails here a little totally bit. Totally fine. This is the fun section, exactly. Do so. the Birmingham Barber Motorsports Experience. Yeah, Atlanta. I, I think a I saw tease. a picture or something. You there? You yeah. went there, right? That's, That's awesome. Right. Atlanta's a tease, man. Birmingham will blow your damn mind. <laughs> check that out. Yeah. Biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome. Uh, becoming more efficient with my time. It, it took me a long time to learn mm. who the customers are that I actually need to spend the most of my time with. I used to want to just please everybody and I would do every transaction, whether it was like a $5,000 commission or a $100,000 commission. Right. And it wasn't until I developed a system where I spent the most time with the guys who were transacting the most and operating in the, in the, in the best manner. Okay. Yeah. 
favorite non-real estate related hobby. So what are you doing when you're not doing all things real estate? Um, I love to swim. I'm a swimmer. I like to do, do lap swimming. My wife and I, um, you know, she's got some bad knees now, but we used to do a lot of triathlons together. I go to car shows constantly. Um, I like to, I like to get on the track. Um, I've got a 911. It's my passion. It's kind of like all my friends. That's all we do. Love that's it. my thing. Yeah. That's great. Uh, newbie advice. So what advice would you give to someone that's looking to get started in the uh, multifamily arena? Yeah, we talked about earlier, you got to hook up with a mentor and, and not just, you got to research these mentors. There's a lot of these guys, these gurus who put, you know, they put together phenomenal websites, right? But they own like two assets in their yeah. entire lives. So find the right guys. And I would, I would, I would begin putting together and thinking about every, every deal you do, getting recommendation letters from the broker, from the lender, um, and, and start building a bio, put a little bio package on yourself. You, and I promise you like over time, couple of years goes by, you buy one or two deals, five years goes by when you go to turn in a letter of intent and you're turning in seven recommendations from bankers, seven recommendations mm. from brokers makes my job as a listing broker, super easy to promote you. I like that. We don't hear that very often. So I think that's all these cool. investors, all these investors know these lenders, they know yeah. these brokers, it's the same guys. And when they see you turn in, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Bo. Oh, I know Joe LaFleur over there. I know Mike Donaldson. I know these guys. Right. And they see those names. They'll call up the brokers. Hey, how was Dante to work with? How did DJ do? How was DJ? Was it easy to work with? Did he close on the deal? Did you guys have any extensions? These guys talk. Right. Yeah. How many times were they retrading? Were they able to you know, keep the word on it? Definitely. Right. I like that advice. That's good. Well, awesome episode, Bo. DJ, thanks for coming in as my co-host this week. Bo, thank you so much for taking the time to come on in. And guys, definitely suggest going ahead over to Amazon grab multifamily investors who dominate, write a review on Amazon as well. That always helps out. Bo, real quick, you want to plug in where people can contact you if they uh, like what you're doing and want to work with you. Yeah, other than those two mediums, the easiest thing is my website is bobeery.com, B-E-A-U-B-E-E-R-Y.com. And the one thing you'll find on there is if you go to the resources tab at the top, no matter what market you operate in, when you click on resources, there are a bunch of cool things that pop up but all the markets that I cover are there. And the reason you wanna click on those, even if you're from Texas or New York or whatever, I want you to look at the tabs that I have in there. I want you to look at the data that I have in there, particularly all the trailing 24 month sales. And the reason I say that is because you wanna know all of those buttons in your market, like the back of your hand. Yeah. The quicker you can react to deals, the quicker you can get the letter of intent to broker, the more your reputation goes up and the more deals you're gonna see. Yep. Speed. Speed. I like it. And something else you touched on real quick, I believe it was you, is whether you're getting an off-market opportunity, you, you got to reply yes or no right away, or else you're just not going to see any more of those. So that's something yeah, huge man. too. 18 hours. Like when I send you a listing, you got to respond in 18 hours. Or like you do that, if you don't respond in, in, <coughs> in 18 hours, or you, you take a week, I, I can't tell you how many times I get an email back from some guy, like I'm already under contract. And he's like, yeah, so can you send me the confidentiality agreement on this? I'm like, what are you even talking about? Like I sent this to you seven days ago. Are you kidding me? He does that to me twice. He's off the list. Like yep. he's not a real buyer. That's not real. So you can see this. So in my office, right there is a copy of your book, actually. That's the <laughs> timelines for the deals just yeah, to make sure, it. you know, you're staying with everything and, and you're on mark. So some awesome stuff. Bo, thank you again so much for coming on the show. DJ, yeah, thanks for joining as a co-host. And my we'll pleasure. talk to you guys soon. Thanks for listening. 
We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.